0: We're going to pick it up in verse 17, Acts 19, verse 17. A solemn fear descended on the city, and the name of the Lord Jesus was greatly honored. Many who became believers confessed their sinful practices. A number of them who had been practicing sorcery brought their incantation books and burnt them at a public bonfire. The value of the books was several million pounds. And so the message about the Lord spread widely and had a powerful effect. However, to cut a much longer story short, all of this grabbed the attention of a businessman in Ephesus named Demetrius. Demetrius owned this chain of shops where they sold these little silver statues of the goddess Artemis. And so this businessman starts getting worried because people are turning to God and aren't buying his small little statues anymore. And so he gathers together all the businessmen from the city and he says, verse 25, "'Gentlemen, you know that our wealth comes from this business.'" But as you have seen and heard, this man Paul has persuaded many people that handmade gods aren't really gods at all, which seems to me to be kind of self-evident. I mean, a God you can make with your own hands isn't really a God who could have created you. And I kind of think the same thing whenever I talk to people these days who start to redefine God to be someone or something they're comfortable with. Like, my God would never do this, or my God would never do that. Listen, if you concoct a God, whether with your hands or in your mind, is not worthy of worship. The real God should be able to challenge you, offend you, confront you, and explode all of your categories. Otherwise, your God is probably merely a projection of yourself. Demetrius goes on, verse 27. Of course, I'm not just talking about the loss of public respect for our business. I'm also concerned that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will lose its influence and the Artemis, this magnificent goddess, worshipped throughout the province of Asia and all around the world, will be robbed of her great prestige. Demetrius then whips everyone up into this crazy frenzy. They converge on the amphitheater, which was one of the biggest in the ancient world. It held 25,000 people, still exists today. In fact, I've been there. It's absolutely huge, massively impressive, and for two whole hours is filled with people crying out at the tops of their voices. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. That went on for two whole hours. Now the Apostle Paul, he's outside. And he wants to go in there to address the crowds. But his friends probably wisely stop him from going in. According to verse 31, they're standing outside begging him not to risk his life by entering the amphitheater. Meanwhile, verse 32, inside the people were all shouting some one thing, some another. Everything was in confusion. In fact, most of them didn't even know why they were there until finally the crowds disperse and Paul and his friends get to live another day. Now sometimes people can hear or read stories like that and they think, well those people were so primitive, so easily led. We, we certainly aren't like that these days. We're way more intelligent, sophisticated and we certainly wouldn't think of worshipping statues or shrines like they did. But in the passage that we looked at last week, if you remember, Paul critiques idolatry by saying, don't think that God can be made through human design and skill. Now, isn't that actually a pretty good description of what tends to happen in our culture? I mean, just think about it. Most people feel that no one has the right anymore to tell them who God is. No one has the right to tell them what they have to believe. People have the right, don't they, to shape their own spirituality, to create their own faith. They have the right to worship whatever they like, wherever they like, however they like. In other words, at the very heart of our culture is the very thing that Paul says is wrong. Paul says you're not allowed to create your own God. Yeah, that's the very essence of what we would consider nowadays to be one of our rights. I mean, you start challenging some of that stuff in our city, and you're probably still going to end up with a riot. It's, idolatry is at the very heart of our culture, even today. So please don't think this passage is irrelevant. But I also think this stuff goes slightly closer to home. You see. God created us in the first place to love and worship him above all things. But even as Christians, I think we have this tendency, don't we, to keep on choosing to give ourselves to love and worship a bunch of other things more than God. And the whole story of the Bible from beginning to end is really God challenging us in and rescuing us from our worship of these false gods so that we would return to him as God. So really, all I want to do in the rest of this talk is challenge every trace of idolatry that might still be hiding in your life. Not in the people out there in this city. We, we touched on that last time. A bit closer to home. The idolatry that may, perhaps, possibly still be lurking in some of our lives. And just to tip you off, the way you'll know that God is perhaps putting his finger on something is your natural reaction, like the Ephesians, will be to resist violently. And so, if I do my job properly this morning, we could end up with a riot on our hands. Look around, who are going to be the ones who start the riot here? Well, maybe a riot at least in your heart or in your head. So here we go. Let me show you five things that I believe you need to understand about idols in your life. Number one, idols are anything that promise you a life of security and joy apart from God. If you want a definition of idolatry, that's it right there. Idols are anything that promise a life of security and joy apart from God. Remember from the story I've just read? That's what the goddess Artemis is. Did she was supposed to be the protector of the city? They believed that she, by being there, guaranteed their security and their joy. So, here's my question for you What's that in your life? About what do you think if this thing's present in my life, then I'll be secure, then I'll have joy? Is it influence or success or beauty? Or money. Perhaps it's romance. Maybe it's fame, getting respect from people. Maybe it's having a family, having kids. What is it that you are pinning your security and joy on? Or to put it another way, to flip it around, what do you think if you don't have that thing, you'll never have security, you'll never have joy? You know, idols aren't usually bad things. As I've said many times before, there are often good things that we have turned into God things. Things you believe guarantee you security and joy, and without which you don't think you can have security and joy, even if you still have God. So, for example, if marriage is that thing, and you kind of believe the good life only begins when you meet that person, the kind of message is, get this, get married, and you'll be happy The flip side, miss this, never get married, your life is effectively over before it started. If you're single right now, maybe you really want to be married. The question is could you be happy and content if you remain single the rest of your life? I didn't ask if that was your preference, but could you still be happy and content? If not, you've probably turned finding a partner into an idol. Similarly, could you be okay if you never progress any further in your career? If the point you're at now is where you remain? Could you be happy and content if you never have kids? Or if your health never improves? Or if your talents never get recognized? Or if you never accomplish anything on your bucket list? Or if how you've suffered is never put right? Be honest what do you think will give you security and joy apart from God? Or, what thing do you think there is no way to have security and joy if you don't have it, even if you do have God? Because whatever that thing is, is probably an idol for you. It's quite probably your primary God. So number one, idols are anything that promise a life of security and joy apart from God. Number two, idols engage the deepest emotions in our hearts. You can see from this story, when you touch an idol, when you threaten idolatry, people tend to get violent. Why? Because their idols are their lifeblood. If you like, they're the thing they're relying on for purpose, for meaning, for protection. Okay, let me ask you, what is that in your life? What are you putting your confidence in, your hope in, what are you trusting in to be your protector? What's that thing that the idea of losing it or never gaining it leaves you in despair? Or here's perhaps another way of coming at it. Who are you unable to forgive? Because if you can't forgive someone, often it's tied to a deep resentment you feel towards that person. And that deep resentment in you that you just can't let go of, it's quite possibly because they attacked or threatened one of your idols. So where's the resentment or the bitterness that you just can't let go of? I'm not saying that what they did to you was okay. I'm not saying it wasn't bad. I'm not saying that what they did was right. I'm in no way looking to condone or gloss over the sin of others. I'm just saying that resentment is often an indicator that they've got hold of something that you believe is more essential for your security and joy than God himself is. Now, here's the thing. When you idolize something good, it ultimately keeps you from being able to fully enjoy it at all. It's like you start obsessing over things and can't enjoy them because you are dependent on them. They become like a life belt that you cling to and no one ever really enjoys a life belt. It's just there for their kind of protection. They cling on to it. Get a few examples. We've spoken about getting married. Maybe that's your life belt. If it is, then you just become this terrible codependent spouse because you need that other person to validate you. So you depend on them for your joy and your security. If you're single, you think that getting married is going to solve everything, that everything will be awesome, all your problems will disappear in a flash. My advice to you would be, please don't get married. Once I once heard someone say, you're not ready to date until you're ready not to date. Because when you're ready not to date, then you're not looking for someone else to give you the security and joy that only God can provide. But if you're looking for another human being to provide that for you, the worst thing you can do is get married. Because that other person will never be able to stand up under the weight of the pressure of the expectation that you're weighing on them. It's like lonely, insecure, single people invariably end up becoming lonely, insecure, married people. Or if you depend on family as your life belt, then you become really controlling over your family. You you kind of flip from being kind, loving mother to dominating, obsessive, controlling mother. Like, am I like that? If your kids are older, why don't you ask them? I'm sure they'll tell you. Moving on. My point is to provoke, to get some kind of response, to dig under the surface. So if you're resenting this, it's working. Let's keep going. A guy called Benjamin Nugent, a cre- you'll hate me by the end of this. Uh, a guy called Benjamin Nugent, a creative writer, wrote a very interesting article where he says, When good writing was my only goal, I made the quality of my work the measure of my worth. For this reason, I wasn't able to read my own writing well. I couldn't tell whether something I had just written was good or bad because I needed it to be good in order to feel sane. I lost the ability to cheerfully interrogate how much I liked what I had written to see what was actually on the page, rather than what I wanted to see or what I feared to see. You see what he's saying? He's saying that when he made writing the main thing made the quality of my work, the measure of my worth, he says, it actually destroyed his ability to write well. Because he couldn't really tell whether what he had done was good or bad. He didn't have the distance because it had to be good for him. Why? He was in the grip of an idol. The idol was, if you become a successful writer, then you'll know you're okay. Then you better really be sure you're a person of value and worth. Which meant if I'm not a good writer, I lose everything. It's not just like, oh, I'm sad, oh, I'm not a very good writer, never mind, I'll try something else. It's like, oh, it's the end of the world. Have you ever noticed how people who seem to have a lot of something normally seem not to be able to enjoy it? Like the people who seem most dissatisfied with money are usually the people who have a tremendous amount of it. Or why is it that? Girls who develop eating disorders are often already beautiful. It's because a good thing has become an ultimate thing. And as a result, is robbed them of the joy that they could have had. It's like things that are intended to bless us for our enjoyment, for our good, end up becoming the thing we look to to save us. Which is why I say idols engage the deepest emotions in our hearts. And if I'm doing my job right, I'm going to be challenging some of your hidden idols, like Paul did. And it's going to be provoking a violent response in some of you. That's the second thing. Idols engage the deepest emotions in our hearts. Thirdly, enjoying this. <laughs> Thirdly, idols need to be protected And the story in Acts, Demetrius says, we need to protect Artemis. The irony is she was supposed to be their protector, and now she needs to be protected by them. So here's my question. What do you feel obsessive about protecting in your life? If you feel like without good marriage, your life is empty, you'll obsess about it. What if I've missed my chance? You'll be paranoid about how you look, about growing older, about impressing others. And if you're dependent on marriage, then if you get married, you'll still obsess that yours is no good. You'll constantly be comparing your experience with the friends' marriages around you. And over time, perhaps you'll end up fantasizing about being with someone else. Or you'll fantasize about the premature death of your spouse so you can be with someone else without feeling guilty. If it's your kids, or he's spoken about being controlling, about being clingy with them, if that's what you're looking to for your joy, for your security, for your worth, it's like you've got to protect your family at all costs, now don't hear me wrong. We all as parents should protect our kids, that's right. But some parents, you know this, that they're always controlling their kids' environment. What they eat, where they go, what they do, who they do it with. They call it protecting their kids, but really all they're doing is protecting themselves. Don't realize that the ultimate goal of parenting eventually one day isn't to hang on, but to let go, to release. They're unable to release, to, to let their kids go, because they need their kids to behave a certain way, or do a certain thing, or get certain grades, or become a certain thing for their own sense of worth. They're not the protector of their kids Their kids are the protector of them. That's why they're obsessive about their family and about their kids. If money's your God, you're always worried about whether you're going to have enough in the future. How can you protect it? How can you hoard it? Of course, you can't ever give any of it away. You can't be generous. We need to hold on to it because it's what you think is going to protect you, but you merely obsess about protecting it. If reputation's your God, you always have to protect your reputation. It's why you really struggle to handle criticism. It's why you always make sure you're the one who gets the credit. Everyone knows how well you've done. It's why perhaps you really struggle when other people do something well. You're jealous. You're envious because you need the affirmation for you to have a good life. You get in the point. Idols need to be protected. Here's the fourth thing. Nearly through. Fourth of five. Fourth thing. Then there's some good news. I promise. Fourth thing. Idols always demand sacrifice from us in order to keep them happy. The whole system in Ephesus was built on appeasing Artemis, making sure she was happy, making sure she wasn't upset. Idols are always like that. They say, if you want me, you have to sacrifice for me. So when a guy cheats at his business... It typically isn't because he's a compulsive liar. He just needs to sacrifice his integrity in order to get the promotion or to get the approval or to get the money that he feels he needs to get a good life. In fact, if you remember the Bible says the love of money is very often the root of all kinds of evil. You know what that means? It means it's the love of money that ends up triggering all kinds of compromise. It's roots in be- hide a whole load of other sins. Why do you lie? Why why do you cheat? Why, Why are you selfish at times? Why do you disobey God? Very often it goes back to the belief that money is the only way of getting the good life that you so desperately crave. For me, I'm generally a truthful person, you'll be relieved to hear, but the occasions I lie tend to be to get affirmation or to protect the illusion of success. So perhaps I will slightly finesse or touch up or exaggerate my achievements over here and keep a lot quieter about my failings over there. Why? Because I want people to think of me as being more successful than I really am. Let me give you some more examples. When Christians are dating non-Christians, they're not doing it normally they really desperately long to tie themselves to a non-Christian for the rest of their lives. Like, that's the main thing for them. That's what they really want to do. And normally it's not because they think it's going to make it a whole lot easier raising their children to know and love Jesus. It's not what they really want in their heart of hearts. But they simply can't stand the idea of being alone. So if they have to, in some way, kind of circumvent God's will to get a partner, so be it. Those Christians in the church who maybe won't obey God with their finances. It's not that they're kind of really stingy people. It's usually just that obtaining their idols of comfort demands that they don't give to God right now. You know, many people worship the God of personal comfort. So anything that makes them uncomfortable, they're not going to go there. They're not going to do it. Whether that's actually... Applying a message like this one, or sharing their faith with their friends, serving on a Sunday, anything that makes someone comfortable, they're not going to go there. It's like you always have to make sacrifices for the idol. And here's the tragic part the idol is never, ever satisfied. It just demands more and more and more and more and more. It demands more time away from your family than away from the church. Then perhaps your integrity, maybe your health, there's nothing it won't steal from you. But still it keeps on showing up, demanding more from you. It's like you couldn't imagine life being good without having that thing. So whatever gets in the way of that, you'll pursue your idol and let everything and everyone else pay the price. And often it's you paying the biggest price. That's the fourth thing, here's the fifth thing. Idols aren't just psychological forces, they're demonic ones as well. We see that fully on display in Ephesus. Wherever idolatry is rampant, so are demons. The tragedy is that we fail to recognize spiritual forces at work in our culture because Satan has figured out he can do more damage by keeping himself disguised. However, Satan preaches the same lie in every idol, in every age, that he preached at the beginning of time, if you remember, to Adam and Eve with the forbidden fruit. He says, if you obtain this, you will effectively be like God. You'll have security and joy. You'll never die. About what has he said that to you? About what is he right now holding it out and saying, you want security and joy? Here's where you can find it. Why don't you prioritize this thing more than God? Why don't you seek this at the expense of everything else? Because if you have this... You'll be like God, you'll be in control, you'll be powerful, you'll know success, you won't have to worry about anything. Now look, I've tried to expose and confront our idolatry as best I can. And let's face it, it's been slightly uncomfortable, hasn't it? But my intention in all of this really isn't to leave you feeling guilty, or condemned, or battered. Honestly, more than anything else, I want to point you to the one true God. Because ultimately, God is better than all of your idols. Here's why. Very quickly, three reasons. Number one, the true God alone gives life. The true God alone gives life. He's a God, Paul says, not made with human hands. He's the creator of all, which means his love is more faithful, more tender, more fulfilling than any romance you could find here on earth. His promises are way more secure, way more reliable than any amount of money. His presence is more life-sustaining than any creature comforts. His future, more fulfilling than a fertile family. His attention, his affections, better than the praise of people. Jeremiah 2, verse 13, really couldn't have put it better. It says, for my people have done two evil things, says God. They've abandoned me, the fountain of living water, And they've dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. He says, sin number one is a sin against God. They thought there was something else that was more trustworthy, more satisfying, more valuable, more joy-giving than God. And so they turned their back on him. Sin number two is actually a sin against you. Because in turning your back on God, you turn your back on the only true joy and life and peace and goodness and hope that can ultimately satisfy you in life. In the words of Jonah 2, verse 8, those who worship false gods turn their backs on all God's mercies. As someone once said, God plus nothing equals everything. Everything minus God equals nothing. So you know what? I'll take God and leave everything else in his hands. And as and when he wants to give it to me, I'm just happy to keep trusting him. And if he never gives anything more to me, he's enough for me. Because the true God alone gives life. Number two, the true God doesn't need you to protect him. He protects you. It's so why King David in the Psalms was able to say, I will love you, O Lord, my strength, my rock, my refuge, my fortress. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? So I don't need to obsess about romance or money or success because I trust you, I rest in you. Or in the words of Isaiah 26, verse 3 You are Lord, you will keep me in perfect peace. You will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. Trust in the Lord always, for the Lord God is the eternal rock. And so I don't need to work really hard to protect him. I'm safe in the knowledge that he constantly protects me. And then thirdly and finally, the true God offered his own sacrifice. Every other God says, if you don't sacrifice for me, if you fail me, I'll destroy you, I'll crush you, I'll make your life miserable. The true God says, actually, you did fail me. My response: I gave myself for you. Rather, than God said, "If you fail me, I'll crush you." Jesus said, "You failed me, and in love, I gave myself to save you." Isn't that the God that you ought to give your life to? Book of Hosea presents Israel as an unfaithful people who have given themselves to idols, and God compares them to a prostitute who's given herself away to countless lovers. And God says, because of what you've done, I ought to divorce you forever. But instead, I will bring you back. And he did that by taking her shame and curse onto himself at the cross. Listen, Jesus is the Only God, whom when you obtain him, will satisfy you. And when you fail him, will forgive you. Really? This morning? It's simply a call to return to that God as your God. To seek him first in every area of your life.